Welcome to Peace by Believing with John Redmond, Associate Pastor of First Baptist Church in Pasadena, Texas. In Scripture, Jesus tells us that as long as we are on earth, we will have trouble. It's not a matter of if we may have a crisis come into our life, but when. On today's program, John will look to the book of Esther for help on figuring out how to handle a crisis. To me, the scripture we're going to be looking at today is one of the most exciting books in all of the Bible. And so if you have your Bible today, open it please to the Old Testament and find the book of Esther. Find the book of Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, and then Esther. This little book only has 10 chapters. You can easily read it in less than an hour. I did this last night before I went to bed. Even though I had been studying it all week, I just said, I want to read this book from beginning to end before I go to bed tonight. It is a fascinating book. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this book is that the name of God is absent. It is never mentioned in the book of Esther. Think about that, an entire book of the Bible, and yet the name of God is never mentioned. We read the entire book, and we don't see God's name, but I'll tell you what we do see. We see God's hand. We see God's hand of providence, God's hand of protection, God's hand of provision. We see the hand of God working behind the scenes of a very dangerous situation that was taking place in Persia many, many years ago. And in the book of Esther and from the book of Esther, we learn how to deal with a crisis. And that's the title of the message today, How to Handle a Crisis, How to Deal with a Crisis. Now, we know what a crisis is. A crisis is a time of great difficulty or trouble or danger. It's, it's, it's intense suffering that we might be going through. And I would say today that many here, or at least some here, would say, John, this is a timely message for me because my family and I now, we're going through a crisis. We're going through something very difficult in our lives. Well, as we just walk right through the book of Esther today, we're going to learn how to deal with a crisis in the right way. Now, there's several things I want to say, but the first thing I want to say about a crisis today is simply this. Not everything in life is a crisis, but some things are. Not everything is. Some things are. You know, some people, you talk to them, and it's like they just think everything is a crisis. Every day is a crisis. And, and they just, it's kind of like they cry wolf. They just have made everything a crisis so much so that when they get in a real crisis, maybe when they reach out for help, people kind of ignore them because they just think, well, you've been saying everything was a crisis. But, but everything's not a crisis. Uh, a flat tire is not a crisis. A cavity is not a crisis. A leaky roof is not a crisis. That's not a crisis. That's an inconvenience, as these other things I have mentioned are. They're not crises. They're, they're an inconvenience. The fact is, life only has a very few crises. A serious illness, that's a crisis. The death of a loved one, that's a crisis. The loss of a job, that's a crisis. Not having enough money to pay the bills, that's a crisis. What I'm saying is many of the things that we go through in our life, we say, man, this is a crisis. The sky is falling. Sky's not falling. Leaky roof can be fixed. Flat tire can be fixed. A cavity can be filled. These things are not crises. 
what I've mentioned there, that is a crisis. Now, in the book of Esther, we read about a true, true crisis. Now, I want to kind of give you the, the cliff notes, the, the, the abbreviated version of what's going on in the book of Esther. As you know, in about 587, 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar led the Babylonian army into Israel, totally destroyed the city of Jerusalem, burned down and destroyed the temple, and carried away the majority of those Jewish people to Babylon. And they were there for 70 years. They were there under the judgment of God. God had allowed that to happen because they had been disobedient to Him. And so there they are in Babylon. Well, time goes by, and the Persians conquer the Babylonians. And so towards the end of those 70 years, now it's the Persians, not the Babylonians, who are ruling the world. Back then, if you were the dominant country, you ruled the world. We see that with the Assyrians, they ruled the world. Then the Babylonians, and then the Persians, they ruled the world. And so now, the children of Israel are in the same location. They're just under the control of a different regime. The king now of the Persians was a man named Ahasuerus. He also went by Xerxes I, and uh, Ahasuerus decided to throw a big celebration, a feast, a party there in his kingdom, and the party lasted for a long, long time. Well, his wife, the queen, was named Vashti, and Vashti was a beautiful lady. And so on one day, the king sent word to his to the queen and said, have her to come to the feast, to come to this celebration. I want everybody in the kingdom to see how beautiful she is. Well, Vashti heard that word that, that came to her, and yet she didn't want to do that. She didn't want her beauty to be exploited or in any way cheapened, and so she refused to show up for the feast. Well, when that happened, it created all kinds of problems, and the bottom line is she was dethroned. She was removed from being the queen, and so now King Ahasuerus, Xerxes, has to find a new queen for the kingdom. And so what happens, we read about it in the book, an extended beauty contest takes place, and all these beautiful young girls are put through a process of beautification and purification, and they appear before the king, and the short of it is a young girl named Esther was selected to replace Vashti as the queen of Persia. Esther was a Jewish girl. She had lived in uh, this part in what was Babylon, now Persia, all of her life. Her parents, her grandparents had been taken into captivity when she, before she was ever born. In fact, when she was young, her mom and dad both died. And so she was raised by her older cousin, named Mordecai, a Jewish man who kind of served more like an uncle to her, but technically he was an older cousin. And so Mordecai and Esther, they're there in Persia, and Esther's chosen now to be the queen, and Mordecai is advising her and telling her what to do. Well, about this time, King Xerxes appoints a man named Haman, H-A-M-A-N, to be his right-hand man. He's the number two guy in control of the whole world, really. And the king makes a decree that everybody in the kingdom has to bow down and worship Haman. And they do. Everybody does that. When Haman comes by, people bow down, they worship, and so on, with the exception of Mordecai. Mordecai was a Jewish man. He was a follower of God, and he's thinking to himself, I'm not bowing down to Haman or anybody else. I'm going to worship God. Well, when Haman found out about the fact that Mordecai would not bow down to him, in fact, he saw it. Haman goes by, and Mordecai refused to bow down. It infuriated Haman. And so Haman goes to the king, and Haman says to the king, King, 
there's a man in the kingdom who's not obeying your order. You've made an, a decree, an edict, that everyone should bow down and worship me. And king, it's, it's really not about me. It's about your order. We've got a man who's not doing what you told him to do, and I think this man should be killed. The king said, I agree 100%. Haman said, but it's not just this man who should be killed. I believe all of his people should be killed. He's a Jewish man, and we have in our kingdom many Jewish people. And I think what we need to do is to destroy all of them, lest they learn from his example and rebel against you. In fact, the, Haman actually said to, to uh, the king, there, these people are already rebelling against you, which was a lie. That wasn't true at all. So the king made a decree that not only Mordecai, but all the Jewish people in the, in the kingdom, all, I mean, this spread out all over the world, that they would all be killed. And so they got some, what we would call dice, what they called lots, and they cast the uh, die. They, they rolled the lots, and a particular month was chosen, a particular day was chosen. On the 13th day of a particular month, all the Jews in the kingdom would be exterminated. They would all be killed. Now, that is a crisis. Here are these people, and their lives are all on the line, and the date has already been established when the king has decreed and commanded that they all be killed. They were in a crisis. Now, what do you do when you're in a true crisis like that? Well, here would be something we learned from the book of uh, Esther, and we'll see this in just a moment. Let your crisis lead to cries of help. Let your crisis lead to cries of help. Many times we get in a tough spot. We get in a tight situation. We even get in a crisis. And instead of crying out to God for help, we complain, we criticize, we get bitter and angry and mad. No, let your crisis lead to cries of help. Now, you're in Esther. Go back to chapter number, or go to chapter number three. And let's begin looking in verse number five. Because I want you to see some of what I've just described. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. And this is the point. He goes to the king, the king agrees, and the command, the edict, the decree is given, exterminate all the Jewish people. It was the Holocaust before Hitler's Holocaust. At least it was an attempted and planned Holocaust. So in chapter number four, we find, now Esther is the queen, so she's in the palace, Mordecai is a nobody at this moment, so he's kind of down in what we would call the courtyard of the palace. He's outside. Nobody really knows who he is. And yet, Mordecai is communicating with Esther in the palace. There's like a go-between. There were people who would go back and forth and deliver the message from Mordecai to Esther. And Mordecai said to one of these people, tell Esther that she needs to go and appear before the king and plead and beg him to change his mind and spare the Jewish people. So Esther gets this word, and Esther sends back word to Mordecai. She says, tell Mordecai that I can't do that because the king has another decree. And here was the thing about the, the decree of the Medes and the Persians. Once they wrote a law, that law could never be changed. That's why sometimes you hear the expression, the law of the Medes and the Persians. In other words, once a decision is made, you can never unmake the decision. And so the king had another decree, and it was this. Anyone who comes into my presence without first being summoned, 
And the way he would summon the people, if he wanted them in their presence, he would lift up his golden scepter. And if he lifted that up and made eye contact with you, that was his way of saying, you can come into my presence. But unless he did that, you were not welcomed into his presence. And if you came into the presence of the king, you would be killed. And so Esther said, tell Mordecai, I can't do that. If I go into the, he has, she said, he hasn't called for me in 30 days, maybe more than 30 days. And so I can't do that. And so Mordecai sends back word to Esther, said, tell Esther, you have to do that. God has put you in this position for such a time as this. And if you don't speak up on behalf of the Jewish people, somebody will. You'll be destroyed, but God's going to spare his people. So let, let's just, let me let you see this, what I'm trying to describe in verse 13 of chapter 4. Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan or Susa, that's the capital of Persia, and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, day or night. And then Esther said, my maids and I will fast likewise. And so what did Esther do when she got in this crisis? She needed to go to the king to beg for his mercy that even though he couldn't change the law, he could write a new law that would trump uh, and overcome that law. But she knew she couldn't go in there uh, unless he summoned her. And so she calls a three-day time of prayer and fasting. And she's praying. And her maids are fasting. And Mordecai's fasting. And all the Jewish people in the area, they find out about this. Everybody's fasting. God, please give Esther favor. Please, God, somehow, some way, have the king to raise his scepter and to invite her into his presence so that she... Well, and sure enough, that's what happened. In time, uh, after these three days, the king raised the scepter, and he invited Esther to come into his presence, and she persuaded him to write a new law, and we're going to see about that in a moment. But the point I'm making here is, in her crisis, and in not only her crisis, but the crisis of all the people, what did Esther do? She prayed, and she cried for help. Now, I want to say this, and I wish I could spend a lot more time on this today. We've got more of this book to cover. If you're in a crisis today, something is happening in your life, in, in your family situation, the best thing that you could do every day would be to set aside a specified amount of time where you get before God and where you pour out your heart to God in prayer. I was reading yesterday in Acts chapter 3, in the very first verse, it says, Peter and John went to the temple at the hour of prayer. They went to the temple at the hour of prayer to pray. I want to ask you today, do you have an hour of prayer? In your daily routine, in your daily schedule, do you have an hour of prayer? Do you have a half hour of prayer? Do you have any time? Well, if you're in a crisis, you need to have a specified amount of time. I would recommend 30 minutes, maybe longer, but I would certainly recommend 30 minutes where you get in the presence of God and where you just pour out your heart to God about this crisis and where you pray for divine intervention, for deliverance 
for salvation, for rescue, for whatever it is you need, for whatever it is your family member needs, and let your crisis lead to cries for help. Now, I want to show you a verse in Proverbs. This is one of my favorite verses, Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. How do we run to God? In prayer. And so I'm encouraging you, especially if you're in a crisis, set aside some time for prayer. Call on God. Maybe time of fasting. Maybe intensified praying, intensified searching, seeking after God, and He will always honor that. Now, the next thing I would say, what are we going to do? We're going to let our crisis lead to cries for help. Then follow this. We're going to let our cries for help lead for complete, lead to complete confidence in God. Now watch this, regardless of the outcome, regardless of the outcome. Now look back in chapter number four, because Esther's thinking, man, if I go stand before the king with him not calling for me, I'm going to, my life could probably be taken. Look at the very end of verse 16. Esther said, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. What did she say? She said, you know what? I'm going to spend three days in prayer. I'm going to put this in God's hand. And then what I'm going to do, I'm going to do what I think is the right thing to do. And I'm going to move forward by faith. I'm going to trust God to make a way for me where there is no way. I'm going to plan on going into the king's presence, even if he doesn't summon me. Now, thankfully, he did summon her, but she was going in anyway. What was she saying? She was saying, I've prayed about it. I've put it in God's hands. And I have complete confidence in God. Now watch this. And she was saying, my faith in God is, has absolutely nothing to do with how this whole situation turns out. You know, there are many people who have lost their faith. And many people who've walked away from the church. And many people who don't do anything, have anything to do with God anymore. And the reason is, back there somewhere, they had a crisis, and they talked to somebody, or they got it in their mind, that if they would just pray about it and believe hard enough about it, that God would answer their prayer the way they were praying it. And so what did they do? Maybe they had a disease. Maybe they had cancer. Maybe their family member or friend had cancer, and they prayed for healing. And somebody said to them, now, we're going to pray for healing, and we're going to believe for healing, and we're going to trust God for healing, and we believe that God's going to heal this disease. And they put all their eggs in that basket. And their faith, now watch this, their faith wasn't in God. Their faith was in a desired outcome. And when that outcome didn't take place, it didn't happen like they wished it would have happened, like they prayed that it would happen, they lost their faith. Because they said, I prayed for this to happen and it didn't happen. Or here, let's play like you're a student minister and you've got a, a kid in your student ministry and their parents are having trouble, the parents of that kid, and they're maybe going through a divorce. And so the student minister calls the kid in and says, now listen, I know what's happening with your parents and it's a tough situation, but we believe God can do anything. We believe God's a God of miracles. We believe God can intervene in this situation. And the student minister says to that kid, you believe God can restore your parents' relationship? Absolutely. The kid says, I believe God can do anything. So the student minister says, we're going to pray. And not only are we going to pray, we're going to believe that God's going to restore this marriage. 
So the student minister prays, the kid prays, boy, their faith's up. They believe in that the relationship's going to be restored. Six months go by, the parents get divorced. And this student is devastated and his faith is shot. Why? Because his faith, even though the intentions would have been right, it was misdirected faith. It was misguided faith. Instead of that student minister saying to that child, what we're going to do, we're praying for restoration. We're praying for reconciliation. We're praying for a miracle. We're putting it in God's hands and we know God can do anything. But keep in mind, your parents have their own free will. See, that student minister had an opportunity to teach that student about more than just what he was, he was just giving that student a slice of the pie, not the whole pie. And he should have said to that student, listen, we're going to put this in God's hands. We're going to pray. Yes, we are believing for a miracle. But that student minister should have taken that one step farther and said, but even if the miracle doesn't happen, we're going to still trust God anyway. We can't just put our faith in a desired outcome. You see that student minister saying to that kid, God's going to restore this. The kid can't control that. It may be that one of the parents can't even control that. What that student minister should have done is said, we're going to trust God regardless of how this situation turns out. Or maybe here's a storm, a hurricane coming through. And so you pray over your house. I always pray over my house if there's going to be kind of hurricane storm. And I do believe, and I trust God to protect my house. But you know what? Even though I'm believing and trusting God to protect my house, that's not the ultimate of my faith. My faith is not ultimately and primarily in a desired outcome. My faith is in God himself. So a person prays over their house. God's not going to let this house flood. Not going to let this house get hit with a hurricane. And the house floods and the roof falls off. And, and the house is, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of damage. And the person's faith is shot. And the person says, man, I don't know what happened. I don't know what went wrong. I was trusting God. I'll tell you what went wrong. Your faith was in a desired outcome instead of being in God himself. What does the scripture say? Have faith in God. Not have faith in a desired outcome. Have faith in God, the hymn says. He's on his throne. Have faith in God. He watches o'er his own. He cannot fail. He must prevail. Have faith in God have faith in God. We all have desired outcomes. We all know God can do anything, and we believe that God can, and we trust that He will if that's according to His will. But that can't be the highest our faith goes. We have to say, God, my faith is in You regardless of how this situation works out. You see, that what I've just said right in the last five minutes can change your whole life. And it can strengthen your faith because you have to have a faith in God. It's kind of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were about to be thrown into that fiery furnace. And they said to the king, they said, King, we believe that the God we serve is able to deliver us from your hand. We believe he's able to keep us from being thrown into that fiery furnace. But then they said these three words, but if not, even if he doesn't do it, even if the outcome is not as we have desired, even if we are fried in that fiery furnace, we will not bow down. We will not worship you. We're going to trust God no matter what the outcome is. And I'm saying to you today, friend, what we need in Christianity today and what we need in our individual lives today is a but if not kind of faith, a faith that says, I believe God can do anything, but even if he doesn't do what I wish he would, he's still God and I still trust him. And that's what we need to do. Let your cries for help, let that result in complete confidence in God regardless of the outcome. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. 
But before we go, I would like to ask you, what are you putting your faith in when you are going through a crisis? Is it a desired outcome or is it in God? If you would like to place your faith in Jesus, you can pray with me now, wherever you are. Just say, Dear Jesus, I believe that you love me and that you died on the cross to pay for my sins. Right now, I ask you to come into my heart, forgive my sins, and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me, and I trust you to do it. Please make me to be the person you created me to be. In your name I pray, amen. For those of you who have just prayed to receive Christ as your Savior today, we would love to know about it and to rejoice with you in your decision. Please let us know by sending an email to info at peacebybelieving.org or by giving us a call at 1-800-337-0157. John has written a booklet that is based on this message. You can find How to Handle a Crisis along with others under the booklets tab on our website, peacebybelieving.org. Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to you being with us on the next Peace by Believing with John Redmond.